Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. I'm Chase Cannon, and I'm here with Suzanne Spradley. We are colleagues in NFP's legal and compliance department, and we're here on this podcast to break down some of the benefits compliance issues that are uh, relevant and developing and apply directly to our uh, client employers. Today, we are going to unpack a recent lawsuit that's made a lot of headlines, may have a huge impact with regard to the ACA. Suzanne, give us a rundown here. What are we talking about? Right. Not an immediate impact, I would say, but I bet all of our uh, audience has heard of this case. It's it has been cited as either Texas versus Azar, who is the secretary of HHS, or Texas v. U.S. Um, it's in the Northern District of Texas. And on Friday, December 14th, it was as in the middle of our, our department's <laughs> Christmas party, we got word, that Justice Reed O'Connor had issued his ruling and he with a finding that the individual mandate was unconstitutional. And as such, the rest of the ACA must be struck down. So to say his ruling is expansive is an understatement. That is a big understatement. Um, let's go back for a moment and discuss the basis for this lawsuit, though. Well, the lawsuit was brought by Republican attorneys general and governors from 20 states and then two individuals, and it was to challenge the constitutionality of the individual mandate and, as a result, the validity of certain portions of the ACA. So to really understand how this lawsuit developed, you have to go back to the Supreme Court challenge on the individual mandate that was back in 2012. Um, And I'm sure most of you remember that Supreme Court challenge in which they upheld the mandate as constitutional, but they labeled it constitutional as a legitimate use of Congress's taxing power. So in that decision, Chief Justice uh, John Roberts rejected the argument that it was permissible under Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce. So that's the Commerce Clause and something to keep in mind as we go forward. Mm -hmm. Now, if you fast forward to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, um, that reduced the mandate down to zero dollars. That's beginning in January 1, 2019. So the argument is without taxation, the legitimacy, or I should say the the constitutionality of the individual mandate is now in question. Is it still uh, valid under a taxing authority if there's no tax? So again, if you recall, as was argued back in the Supreme Court case, um, they said that the individual mandate was so closely tied to the rest of the ACA that the rest of the ACA, or at least portions of it, was invalid or was it was not viable if you took away the individual mandate. And so um, the thought is, if you don't have an individual mandate, then people aren't going to buy insurance. And um, obviously, that's not entirely true because many people bought insurance before, but they're trying to expand access to insurance and they want Mm -hmm. people to have the the incentive to go buy it. On the other side, on the intervener states, they countered with an argument that said, well, if the mandate is no longer upheld as a tax, it should be held under the Commerce Clause because it's no longer coercive. It's no longer a requirement if you don't penalize someone for not doing so. So now you can't say that Congress um, Congress does have the power to regulate commerce, but they're not. It's no longer uh, a mandate, and so it's no longer a penalty associated with it, and therefore it should be validly held, upheld under the Commerce Clause. So it's a very circular argument. Right. You can see. Okay, so remind our audience here, Suzanne, why is it so important for individuals to buy insurance? Aside from that obvious benefit that they get from the coverage itself, what's the reason that this is so important? Well, it's, it's important for the insurance companies because under the ACA, if you recall, 
um, insurance companies are required to offer coverage to anyone who walks in their door. So they can no longer price their product, what we call underwriting, based on someone's health status. And insurance just typically doesn't work that way. You always have underwriting with with insurance. It's how they price their products. Um, if you think of any other industry, they take into account cost in order to figure out how they're going to price their product. And, and insurance companies typically have done the same. So in order to offer health insurance without taking into account the cost or someone's health status, they need a very broad risk pool. Um, so they need to spread that risk of no underwriting. And in order to create that broad risk pool, they need a lot of insureds. The way you get a lot of insureds is by making it a mandate and requiring people to buy insurance because otherwise, if you leave it up to them, they'll only buy it if they think they need it. Um, if the risk pool diminishes, then the insurance companies could find themselves just providing coverage to those people who think they need it, who have some kind of a health issue. And the fear is that if you only have people with health issues, the price of the product goes up, it eventually becomes unaffordable, and the, the market spirals out of control. So, you know, keep in mind, insurance companies are not in business to lose money. They are profit. They are profit companies. They are not nonprofits. Right. So they are there to make money and they need to be able to price their products and make a profit. So if that's the theoretical result of getting rid of the individual mandate, why are Republicans so uh, inclined to do that? Well, they really, I mean, I think they philosophically do have an issue with having the government require you to buy insurance, but also they want to do away with the accompanying re requirements of the individual mandate, mm -hmm. which are found under the ACA, which are guarantee issue, making insurance companies, again, issue um, to anyone who, who walks in their door, community rating, limiting how they can rate their products, the ban on pre-existing condition exclusions, and the other mandates are in the small group market. Now, this doesn't mean that they want to eliminate the pre-existing condition ban altogether, and we'll talk more about that. And in fact, there's bipartisan support to keep that. Mm -hmm. But the plaintiff's argument is that if you eliminate the individual mandate, which has clearly been argued as a pillar of the ACA, then other portions of the ACA that are tied to that must be struck down. Um, Judge O'Connor's ruling went beyond even that, and we'll we'll dig into that a bit more, but he struck down the entire ACA as, as unconstitutional. In a sense, I'm making that a bit of a broad statement. Nonetheless, it really changes things and, and frankly, really makes his, his ruling ripe for controversy. Okay, so let's go back to the, get into some of the weeds on the actual decision here. Um, can you add some color to um, the defense of this case and how it got started? Yeah, so what's interesting is um, typically when you have a case that's against the United States, you have the DOJ who's going to defend it. And in this case, in order to align themselves with the Trump administration agenda, the DOJ refused to defend this case. So you had you had governors and attorney generals that were um, filing suit against, you know, really HHS, the United States, and then the DOJ re refusing to defend the constitutionality of a of a statute. So you had opposing states intervene, and they're called interveners. So you had about, I believe it was 18 or 20 opposing states, interveners step in, and they are defending the constitutionality of the uh, individual mandate. So now if we go back to the ruling, let's just talk about it. We're going to unpack it for a, min for a minute. Technically, it was considered a partial summary judgment. The plaintiffs had actually requested a preliminary injunction, and an injunction is when you ask the court to step in and to restrain a party from going ahead with a certain action, a course of action. In this case, the judge did not grant that injunction. Um, that would have halted the individual mandate in the ACA right there. 
Um, instead, they, he gave a partial summary judgment, which is he reached conclusion on some of the merits of the case. So there were actually five different issues, and he took one issue, which was the individual mandate, and he reached three conclusions. One was that the plaintiffs did have standing to sue, and you'll hear that argument coming up again and again, and I'm not going to dig into that on this podcast. Um, the second was that the individual mandate is no longer permissible under Congress's taxing authority. And the third is that it's inseverable to the ACA, so the entire ACA is invalid. Creates a little bit of complexity in the appeals process. So I understand there was an issue with seeking an appeal based on this type of ruling. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, we are going to get in the weeds, but I think it's helpful because people hear the different terms and they hear things in the news. And so let's just take a step back. Frequently in litigation, lawsuits involve multiple claims. And so during a course of a lawsuit, certain claims could be dismissed. Others could be moved for judgment on certain claims, and other claims are allowed to just continue on to trial. So generally, a party must wait for a final decision of the trial court before appealing. And when we say final decision, we mean, we mean a ruling that is takes care of all the issues in the case so that there's nothing left before the court to continue. Um, so what we have here is what's called an interlocutory appeal, and it's an immediate appeal of a ruling prior to the progression of the case. So you have just one issue that's been resolved. Um, you have a judgment on that. And so the appeal on that issue has been they've requested to go forward. Typically, courts don't like interlocutory appeals because they don't want to bifurcate legal proceedings, so they rarely grant them. Um, and this was the concern with the judge's ruling on the individual mandate. When it first came out, they said it's not appealable. We need a final judgment in some manner so that we can appeal it. So that's, you know, that's where you heard a lot of the back and forth initially. Right. So this is a great uh, law school 101 uh, litigation slash civil procedure lesson that you're right. giving us here. We appreciate that. Um, I understand, though, that all the parties asked the judge in this case to allow for an immediate appeal to the Fifth Circuit. Yeah, they were all on the same page on this issue. Um, they all agree that they that they would like that immediate appeal ability, I will say, <laughs> the interlocutory appeal um, to move it on to the Fifth Circuit. And the judge did agree, and he certifies his, his decision for interlocutory appeal on December 30th, so right before the end of the year. He stayed the additional proceedings of the case so that the individual mandate issue is, is moving forward on appeal. And right, that seems like a good thing to do considering the magnitude of this case. Let's get it appealed. Let us get, let's get it going up and see what the higher courts have to say before um, it impacts too many people. Right. Um, I've heard a lot of criticism of the judge's ruling. What's your general feeling about that? Well, there is a lot of criticism, and it, it really depends on who speaking um, as to what's being criticized. But I think all agree that the judge went a bit beyond even what the plaintiffs were requesting, um, primarily as it concerns this issue of severability. Mm -hmm. So... The idea is that if the individual mandate is found unconstitutional, what portions of the ACA are so intertwined with the individual mandate that they must be um, fall as well, along with the individual mandate? And if you think back, courts have to look at precedent. So when they make decisions, they have to look at what prior courts have decided on a similar issue. It's precedent. So the Supreme Court precedent generally directs courts to have a strong presumption of severability. That means if they find something invalid, they should presume that it could be cut away 
uh, severed from the rest of the statute because they really want to allow statutes generally to be continued in, if, if possible. And when looking at severability, they want to be guided by congressional intent. So the intervener states argued that congressional intent is clear. If you look back to when the mandate's penalty was zeroed out, they left the other provisions of the ACA intact. Uh, the plaintiffs, on the other hand, argue that congressional intent should be viewed from the eyes of Congress in 2010. Uh, and the judge looked at them both and said, well, I think they both count. I think you look at Congress in 2010 and you look at what Congress did in 2017. It's clear in both instances from the judge's view, I should say it's clear, that the mandate is inseverable from the entire ACA. And then he went so far as to say that uh, this part I think I have to agree with. Determining which portions should remain is a level of legislative guesswork, and that is beyond judicial power. So... Let's just unpack that for a second. If we look at the 2017 Congress, the judge makes a point in that he distinguishes between the repeal of the individual mandate provision itself and the use of the budget rec reconciliation process that just zeroed out the penalty. So he said the mandate itself, you know, it remains on the books, which is a valid point. It, it was not repealed. And so it's hard to say that congressional intent is for it to fall, but have the other portions of the ACA remain when it's still on the books. Right. So um, there's just, you have to understand that when we're talking about this case, it's very complex. And so we're trying to hit it in a short <laughs> podcast. And so everything that we talk about really is much richer than what we can talk about here. And there's so much more color to it, but at least we're giving kind of a basic idea of what it is. Yeah. And I think you've outlined another interesting structure of our government and getting to the constitutional law 101, perhaps what is Congress's role versus what is the court's role? And I think that's really what uh, the judge here is trying to outline and maybe was a big struggle in the case. What did Congress intend for this law to be? How inseverable was the individual mandate? And that can be very complex when you're talking about the intent of two different Congresses, right. one in 2010, one in 2017. Right. And I think the concern here is because he did say that the entire ACA fell because it, he couldn't determine the portions of it. And it was clearly inseverable in his view. What's concerning here is that you have this broad, complex body of law mm -hmm. that is considered now invalid because of one provision of the law. Um, so it really does erode the ability of Congress to legislate. Right. And this concern of the balance of powers is where this comes in. There's a, f a famous case of Marbury versus Madison that most of you probably studied at some point in school. Um, but they said, in every case, we must respect the role of the legislature and take care not to undo what has been done. So I think there needs to be somewhat of an extreme case in order to find something that Congress has passed as invalid or unconstitutional and clearly don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater um, right. at, uh, you know, when there's one provision that has some concern. Right. OK, so that's a big issue. Obviously, the higher courts on appeal uh, we'll tackle this, but let's talk about that appeal. What else do we know about the appeals uh, process? So the attorneys general for 16th state in, in Washington, D.C., did say that they will appeal the um, federal judge's December ruling. And it's led by California AG. Um, and the filing is going to be in uh, the Fifth Circuit. There have They have already filed a, a formal notice of appeal, so that's kind of the first step. I don't think the additional filings have been made yet for the appeal. Mm -hmm. um, and then it will likely go to the Supreme Court a bit. But this is a lengthy process, probably extending into 2020 at the, at the very least. Right. So it's clear this is going to go up on appeal. 
It's going to be reviewed by the Fifth Circuit, and that decision likely will be reviewed by the Supreme Court. Right. In the meantime, what is going on with the ACA? What should employers expect here? What do we do? So the, the Trump administration will continue to enforce the ACA in the meantime. Okay. And what that means is you, you, there's still going to be health insurance offered through the insurance exchanges. There will still be premium tax credits. Employers must continue to offer coverage as required under the employer mandate. Medicaid expansion will continue. The insurance market mandates are still going to be in effect. So there is a pre-existing condition exclusion. It's still banned. Um, there's still prohibitions against lifetime and annual limits on essential health benefits. Children must still be offered coverage up to age 26. Um, group health plans still cannot have a waiting period longer than 90 days. Large employers must offer affordable coverage. All of the things you think about contributions to FSAs are still limited in 2019 to 2700. So all of the things that you think about under the ACA, it really impacts um, all of those areas are still continuing. Employers still have to file their Forms 1094 and 1095C, right. correct? Correct. That's right. a good one. <laughs> so for now, maybe not a lot happening. Employers should con continue complying with the AC as they otherwise would have, but we now have this huge cloud of a uh, judicial case rising up to the Fifth Circuit, and we'll see what happens there. I've also seen a ramp up in political discussion about the healthcare world. Right. What do you think this means politically, Suzanne? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll leave the political fallout of this case to the pundits to figure out, and there's plenty of them out there that will um, give their opinion on that. But I know that, it, you know, it certainly isn't good for the Republicans in the next election. They don't want to be viewed as the party that's stepping in the way of people having insurance if they have a pre-existing condition. Um, and I know uh, there's already been some bills that have been, uh, that have some bipartisan support yeah, I think the Republicans are looking ahead on that one. They've introduced a couple of bills in both, I believe, the House and the Senate that would restore the pre-existing condition exclusion bans if this case were to result in a repeal of the ACA. Right. Yeah, I think that's the hot button issue, really. And if right. they can get that resolved, then it won't be quite as much concern. We can certainly expect the Democrats in the House to spend some time reinforcing other measures of the ACA as well. And with this ruling being so broad, it's going to give them ample opportunity to focus on health care issues. I think kind of the side issue of that is that other um, issues that may have come to the table are now going to be sidelined. And so there's just a lot more to chew on uh, with the uh, with the ACA and in Congress. So we'll we'll just be watching it as right. we go. Should be very interesting to watch with the new Congress now in session and a Democrat led House versus right. the Republican led Senate. And right. we also have the 2020 elections lurking out there in a few years. So we'll definitely. It's going to uh, be messy. It's going to be messy. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Suzanne, for breaking down this case, and we will continue to watch it and report on it. And obviously, future podcasts, we'll talk about it uh, when we know more. But thank you so much for breaking down the details and helping everybody understand a little bit more. Absolutely. Like we like to say on our podcast, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us. Have a good day.